Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is a CEO and founder who is widely recognized as an expert within the cannabis sector. Leveraging a successful career in institutional finance with a focus on investment banking and private equity, he has built one of the most respected and financially successful cannabis enterprises in the United States, Satya Capital. He's, reg he's regularly featured as a thought leader in Forbes, Business Insider, and Bloomberg, and is considered an outspoken advocate for social justice and sustainability. The shot ready? Welcome to Let's Be Blunt with Montel, sir. Montel, thank you for having me. I couldn't be more excited. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. So look, will you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into real deep, deep detail, but tell me about where you grew up and, you know, when you went to college, did you study in college and what were you starting when you started out in life? What did you want to do? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I grew up um, only child to two immigrant parents, you know, both physicians came to this country in the seventies. So, you know, from a very early age, I think, you know, um, being from a South Indian family, again, immigrant parents who are both physicians, I always kind of believed I would follow in their footsteps, right? It was something that we understood, taking care of people, healthcare, medicine, you know, um, natural remedies, Ayurvedic medicine, something that's just culturally ingrained in us, right? Um, and then, you know, healthcare was something I always really respected just from my own family. Um, grew up in Northern New Jersey, ended up going to college and business school in Washington, DC. And really until the end of undergrad, like I said, I was really focused on pre-medicine and pursuing a career in medicine. Um, really wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, it's really in college where I got more of an exposure to business and entrepreneurship and ended up interning in Wall Street and then ultimately decided to pursue a career in private equity out of college, which ultimately led me to business school and investment banking and so forth, um, which is pretty cool because now full circle, I've kind of been able to bridge business, medicine and science with the pursuit in cannabis, if you will. Okay, well now did did you were you did you dabble in cannabis? So first off, were you born here in the United States? Yeah, so I, I was born here. Um, and like I said, my parents came here in the 70s. You know, it's a pretty crazy story. They came here, mom didn't speak English, they met in medical school, moved here in a time when, you know, there's very few Indians in the country at that point. Um, so pretty remarkable, you know, American dream kind of story. Um, but definitely very proud, you know, as a son, right? And definitely had that legacy of I've got to build upon the hard work and the sacrifices they've made to come to this country. You know, before we, as we continue on, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but I just said something popped in my head and I'd love to hear your, your views on this. What do you think about this, you know, the rights movement to take away birthright citizenship? I mean, you are a perfect example. You have two parents who are immigrants. They come to the country. You were born here in the United States. Therefore you are a U.S. citizen, but now there is a movement afoot by all the leading Republican candidates to remove that because they want to slow the tide of people of color coming into America. They can lie about it any other way they want to say it, but that's exactly what they're trying to do. What do you think of that? I, I mean, listen, right. As a person of color, I think it's ridiculous as a child of immigrants. I think it's ridiculous. And I ultimately, I believe that this is a country built upon immigrants. Right. Um, you know, and so it, it's really disheartening, you know, when we hear these things, you know, just this morning I was listening to NPR and they were talking about the Supreme Court and Iowa and Roe versus Wade. And it's just disheartening in 2023 to feel like we're moving backwards and to feel that 
people are stuck on these issues instead of being like, how do we continue to innovate and move this country forward and learn from what's made this country so great? Um, and I just find that immigrants are some of the hardest working people in this country because you're coming here for a better life, right? You're coming here to pursue hard work to open doors of opportunity. You're not looking for an easy road out. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I, there's nothing really I can say other than it's kind of disappointing and disheartening. And had you come, you know, in the next couple of years, I mean, if a Republican gets in office, this may be something that I think within the next eight years, we're going to have to deal with this period. I think this is a movement afoot. I mean, when you have people like, you know, it, it, it bothers me some when I hear like, and maybe you can, you please don't hesitate. If I'm about to say something that might piss you off a little bit, but let me know. But it pisses me off when I hear Nikki Haley say she's a woman of color, but she's never been a woman of color until she's decided to run. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, uh, she's she's hidden in the fact that she's more Caucasian looking than this she is Indian looking. But now that she's running, she wants you to know that she's India. It's like, calm down, lady. It, you know? It's very much so. Right. So I have a one and a half year old daughter. My wife is of Mexican descent. You know, um, you know, she's an immigrant herself. Her grandfather is Afro-Cuban. So our daughter is Afro-Cuban, Mexican, <laughs> Indian, like yeah literally so for me these are very personal sensitive topics and you know again women's health and all this stuff and i think you know for me I, again yeah like you said if it doesn't piss you off you're living under a rock or you're part of the problem and i think like you said we're jumping around on a lot of different topics but it's all really related and Absolutely. you well, know let's let's come full circle because you know you just brought up the fact that you you know it's almost combining all the skills and all the things from your family and knowledge and education to bring you to cannabis here in the United States. But now we understand that cannabis is becoming in several of the different states in India. There is a movement afoot. And they haven't jumped completely in the full sale, full scale cannabis. But I know that the hemp uh, market is is getting ready to start booming out of India, is it not? It is. It is. Yeah. And there's already families, you know, kind of building businesses around it. I think the problem in places like that is it's it's hardly free enterprise, you know, and it's not really an opportunity to to disperse the wealth and to empower impoverished communities. It very much is, you know, similar to like the limited license states that we see in the East Coast or things like that, where, you know, again, a few, those who are connected, those who are wealthy, those who are powerful, get to participate. And I think, yes, like you said, the industry as a whole and the direction we're moving is great. But I personally really believe this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We have to use this opportunity to create social good. We have to use this opportunity to uplift all of us as a community. Otherwise, we're just wasting a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like when is the next time something like this is created? But I mean, but then I, I hear you. But at the same time, take a look at the industry in the United States. I guarantee you, if you did a search, Google search, you'll find that you're probably one of only about four or five Indians, uh, people of Indian descent in the United States that are entrepreneurs in the cannabis business. Oh, I, I would say Indian and, you know, person of color that's running a, a large scale commercial multi-state operator. Yeah. And I mean, that that is a big part of the problem. And I think that's for us why our platform has had such a vocal you know stance in terms of equality social justice we've partnered with the aclu during the last election cycles 
But I think it's like you and I can relate to these things at a personal level. So we're using our platforms to evoke change, right? Hopefully, I hope that the things that I'm doing with my brands, my companies motivates others in the industry to step up and do the same thing versus excluding others, if you will. Let's hope. I mean, you know, your your mouth to God's ears because it just seems like right now this entire industry is built on not inclusion but exclusion. Absolutely. Um, I mean, work as hard as they can to make sure that it stays exclusionary. Um, that's the way I feel about it. And I've been dealing with this industry for twenty years, long long before it was vogue to be involved in cannabis. Long before it was the green rush, I was out here testifying before states across this country and trying to make access to medication available to all, not just a few. And um, have have seen very clearly with my own eyes the fact that this is a closed door industry that's only opens the door a crack if it thinks it can take advantage of that opening of the door. If it can't, psh, keeps the door closed. That's my feeling on it. But, you know, um, let's go back for a second. When did you first start experiencing or dabbling in cannabis? Was it in college? Was it after college? What? Yeah. So I, I, I experimented for the first time that summer going into my freshman year of high school. You know, I'm now 39 years old. Um, but then pretty much since then, I've been using cannabis, right? Um, like most young people, it was primarily focused in recreational usage. Um, you know, as I got older, I started understanding how it could help me in other ways beyond just recreational enjoyment. But it really was, it really was once I was working on Wall Street, right? Um, you know, I've always been the person that's been focused on health and wellness, not really a big drinker. Um, and so for me, the Wall Street lifestyle never really made sense of burning it on both ends and, you know, the heavy drinking culture and things like that. I just never found that conducive to a really high intellectual pr work product. And so that's really when I started to dabble in cannabis as a medicinal, you know, a medicinal method. And that's really when I was able to start to understand terpenes, cannabinoids, how I could dose myself to deal with, you know, stress, anxiety, insomnia, but still function with very little sleep and put out a very, very high work product, which, as you know, in an industry like that, that's the only acceptable type of work, right? And so that's really for me when the light bulb started to go off and I really understood that, hey, although this is stigmatized, this is, you know, early 2000s, pre, you know, recession years, if you will, there's a lot of people like me that if had the opportunity would lean into this and away from other things, right? It's conducive to a productive, healthy lifestyle. And that's really where the entrepreneurial vision started to kind of unfold for myself. So you thought, probably, what was your first thought was it to go into business to actually be a grower or did you want to go into it from a financial standpoint? No. So I think for me, you know, it's always building businesses, right? I'm entrepreneurial in that manner. So at first it really was consumer research. I saw the similarities for me of how the wine industry exploded, how it really went from like, you know, boutique wealthy people appreciating wine to suddenly this explosion of like, you know, $5 wine all the way up to wine clubs. And, you know, everybody knew a little bit about wine and you started seeing just, you know, big labels pop up, the consolidation and, you know, people that never drank wine were consuming wine. And it just seems so parallel to that. Right. And it just felt to me that, Hey, if this stigma goes away or if legalization ever were to open, there's a real branding exercise here and people could be educated on how they could use cannabis responsibly, medicinally, 
And it really doesn't need to focus on anything about getting high, right? And so around that time is when Colorado started to talk about legalization. And that's when it really came full circle for me, where it was like, hey, all of these things that I'm kind of plotting, all of these things that I'm ideating, now there's suddenly a pathway for a real business here. I should really focus on this. And so the first focus was first on maybe developing out your own brand. But then to do that, you had to go file for licenses or, or make relationships with people who were growers, processors, the like, right? Is that what you did to begin with? Yeah. So I actually ended up moving to Los Angeles. Um, you know, I packed up my bags, left Wall Street, moved to LA at the time. I had never been to LA, but I just figured, you know, California was the largest medical market. It would eventually turn into the largest legal market. And that's the epicenter of the growing culture and really where I needed to be if I was serious about this. Started pursuing, you know, studies in horticulture at UCLA, started formally taking cannabis cultivation classes. I wanted to understand every aspect of the plant and whatever would be a potential business, as well as started, you know, um, you know, consulting with medical cannabis companies here in California, right? Really from a financial standpoint, understanding their businesses, giving them advice, helping them get financing. That's what really allowed me to see how the medical market was shaped. How are these guys operating in a licensed environment? How was the consumer experience? What were the businesses like, the financials? That really allowed me to understand the entire opportunity, right, from a case study perspective, and then to really decide what is the best path forward for myself and my entrepreneurial path. Gotcha. I mean, it must have been challenging when you first started. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced when you first started? I'm sure being Indian was one of them, right? Yeah, I mean, it was super challenging, Montel. I mean, listen, at that time, it, the stigma was insane, right? I mean, People on the East Coast really weren't paying attention to what was happening in places like California. There was real safety concerns because you had a black market, you had a gray market, you could have medical dispensaries, but you couldn't legally cultivate cannabis. You know, there was a, still a lot of disconnect and chaos in what was happening. I couldn't tell people that I had just left a successful Wall Street career to now get into cannabis before cannabis was even illegal. There was no opportunity for raise to raise money. So I was self-funding everything, you know, and even at that time, this was pre-legalization. So you really had to figure out what was the actual potential path forward while you're talking to as many consultants, lawyers, advisors, et cetera, who all seemed to think they were the experts. But really, you know, they were all selling picks and shovels at some at some degree or not, right? And at the same time, on the cultivation side, everyone's going to tell you they're the best cultivator out there. But really, none of them have really cultivated at a regulated commercial scale at that point. It's not the same thing, right? Growing in a garage, growing a large black market operation, those are not the same things as operating a licensed, regulated, tested commercial operation. Right. Absolutely. And where's your business at like today? I mean, uh, give us an overview of some of the companies that you're some of your company holdings. Yeah. So, you know, in California, our operations are called Vantage Point. Um, the companies that make up that we operate about 100,000 square feet of indoor cultivation. We operate Vantage Point, which is our distribution arm. We have retail in-house 
and we currently operate a portfolio of two indoor brands. A Golden State is actually the number two premium brand in the state of California, and our strain Lava Flower is actually the number two most sold strain in the state of California. So what we focus on is very, very high-end exotic indoor cannabis, whether that's in the form of solventless oils, flour, and now we're going into all natural edibles, but really the thesis is the highest quality products that are commercially available. And you do, I mean, California is a crazy market, especially I was there for a while. I was in California for a little bit uh, with my own brand, but you know, it became so daunting trying to meet all of the individual municipality standards for packaging and that, 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 you can cross across, you can drive it down the highway, but if you get caught in this county, you might get, you know, it's, it's crazy. How did you deal with some of those things that have been impediments for others? So <laughs> it, it would be a lie if I told you the journey hasn't been an impediment the entire way, right? From simple things like moving product from Trinity to our distribution center and going through federal parkland in between, right? To the lack of clean banking or so, like simple banking solutions in California, right? to the volatile tax environment, to the fact that the black market here in California is three times, if not four times larger than the legal market in California. And now we're in going on to year five of legalization. So, I mean, you know, the impediments have been there the whole step of the way and they still are there. I think the difference for us is we've been focused in our lane and very disciplined, right? We, our thesis was create the highest quality products because I myself am a, cons am a consumer and I was really creating products for my palate and my cultivation partner, Rob Masterson, one of the best cultivators around was doing the same. So we were never going to deviate from them. And then it was really about building a sustainable, sound business built around profitability, right? Where I think a lot of our peers were looking for a pot of gold inside of 12 months, right? They were looking to go public in Canada, pull out a bunch of money, blah, blah, blah. For us, we were looking to build a real business. We really cared about the consumer experience and we still very much do. And I think that's authentically what separated us because we've just built a really healthy business brick by brick by brick. And we've self-funded it. We became profitable inside of our first year. We've been profitable for five years and we've just been reinvesting our own cash flow. So it's forced us to be disciplined. And I mean, what's your vision for your company now? How do you want to grow it? So we're actually expanding into multiple states. Again, like I said, a golden state's the number two premium brand here in California. We've got the number two most sold strain. We've got a brand called Phases, which is the leading effects-based brand here in California. And I believe that people want good cannabis in all of these states, whether it's Florida, New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts, and there's just not operators operating at the level that we are, right? People understand that Cannabis is California, right? And the best of the best are here. The competitiveness is here. The innovation is here. And we now have a track record that's proven that, hey, we can perform and succeed in the most competitive state, even though we're like the David and Goliath story, if you will. And now that we've got inroads into these other states, we want to share our knowledge and our expertise and our products, our genetics with consumers in all of these other states. I mean, you, know, you're, you, you are doing uh, completely vertical um, situations in every state, right? You're, yeah, you're, the reason we go vertical is simply because at our product quality, a licensing deal, which is typically what you see in cannabis, right? I license my brands to an operator in Michigan. 
there's just not operators that are operating at our level. So if I were to do those licensing deals, then I'm only risking my own brand equity and I'm not being authentic to the consumer experience. Gotcha. Well, I've kind of I've kind of gone the opposite direction for you. I literally have a have a brand that's out now I'm in Mass. Found a really good uh, a grower in Mass and and person to team up with there. But um, I've got a really good situation in Massachusetts. I'm about to launch within the next two weeks in Georgia. So I'm in Georgia and I'm hopefully going to launch within the next three months in Missouri and then looking to get into Illinois like yourself. But I'm doing it a little bit differently. I'm doing it from a licensing standpoint. Yeah. I've got the brand. I've got the formula. I'm the formulator myself. So I literally yeah. have been working on formulations of terpenes and, you know, other monocannabinoids for now almost 10 years long before it became vogue. Yeah. So it's been great. And and we're, we're starting to, as long as we stay focused, we're starting to see that this is starting to click around because there's a lot of perpetrators out there. I like to call them a lot of people out there talking a lot of trash, but don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I think they don't know what they're doing. They're talking a lot of trash. And I think they authentically don't really give a crap, right? right. Like, and that's, that's really one of the biggest problems, I think, in this industry. We've gotten to a point where, you know, now everybody's out there trying to see if they can buy themselves a boat rather than how to figure out how to raise the level of this entire industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the most laughable moments for me was when Boehner came into the cannabis industry, right? Mm -hmm. And it was just like, here's a guy that's staunch against cannabis and suddenly he's an executive at a multi-state operator. I mean, could that be the most uh, like obvious smoke and mirror situation out there? And I think next, you know, next, to, next to McConnell, you know, who, yeah. uh, uh, you know, made sure that they passed the, the farm bill so his boys in Kentucky could make some money. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the one of the craziest. Um, you couldn't written, you couldn't have written that in a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And I think, you know, someone like yourself, your journey, you're a veteran, your own journey through cannabis. You've been an advocate for a long time. You're not going to put your name on something if you don't believe in it. Like this, this mission for you is a lot more, you know, personal. It's driven. You're knowledgeable, you're researched, and you believe in what this plan can do for others. Right. And the same goes for me and my partners. And so it's the reason we're a privately held company because I'm not going to sell out or have a board or because I'm public, tell me I need to do something when I care about things like sustainability, social justice and creating the best products. Right. Like I'm not going to sell that self myself short or my company short. Um, so it's forced us to be in a lane. And I think, again, coming full circle, that lane has been advantageous to us because it's forced us to be fit, if you will. Yeah, I mean, this whole idea that you just you brought it up, but, but being an eco friendly cannabis operator is something that i think is just um you know rare in this industry i mean there a lot of people claim to be but you know they really aren't and yeah you know there's a lot of of product out there that's claimed to be manufactured at the highest quality then we know that these guys are getting some sort of dislip still butane extracted so it's kind of like it's insane and you know, I, this industry, where, where do you see us going in the next couple of years? I mean, you know, you're almost like pushing a rope up a hill. You know what I mean? I, I mean, feel like we've been pushing a rope up a hill this entire journey. You know, like if you look at some of our packaging behind us in California, people were telling us it made no sense. It didn't fit a certain archetype or blah, 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 blah. Right. Or no one's going to pay for premium cannabis. People don't care. You know, it's. I understand that people are afraid of change, right? 
But like in any industry, there has to be a maturation, there has to be competitiveness, and there ultimately has to be innovation for the consumer to win. We've just been on the forefront of that because again, we love the product. We're consumers, we're connoisseurs, we're cultivators, and ultimately we're creating things for our own product. And then we're weaving in our own personal stories and things we're passionate about. So for me, stuff like sustainability really matters, right? I'm an outdoorsman. My business partner's an outdoorsman. It's the reason we build cultivations using entirely hydroelectric power, right? Like there's no other, I would argue, indoor cultivations that are running entirely using a hydroelectric infrastructure, right? And so that allows us to now today be a completely carbon neutral vertical business, the first at least in California, and I would argue probably in the country, right? But again, I didn't invent the concept. I learned from guys like Jan Chouinard, who started Patagonia, who taught me that, hey, if you're private, you can be profitable, you can do all of these things, just don't sell your soul. And so for me, it was like, well, if they can do this in their businesses and in their industries, why couldn't a guy do it with a cannabis business? It may not be easy, but if I want to do these things, I can figure it out. And if I truly believe that the plant is intrinsically positive, then everything that I am doing entrepreneurially with the plant should be intrinsically positive. No different than the fact that 92% of our packaging is recyclable, right? Or is made from recycled material. Again, like you said, there's a lot of waste in cannabis. It doesn't need to be. It just means maybe your profit margins are a little less or it's a harder problem to solve. The opportunities are there. The question is, do you pursue those opportunities or do you take the easy path forward? Yeah, no, I mean, people in this industry, they, they, I think, you know, we have short term memory of, you know, prohibition, where a lot of these people think that prohibition is going to step back in in the next couple of years. So I better make as much as I can real quick. And my processes be damned in a sense. So they're trying to make as much money as they can, as fast as they can, not recognizing that this industry is really, literally, when you say burgeoning, this is, we haven't even haven't gotten any further than the Wright brothers pushing that wooden hill plane down a hill. Mm -hmm. this, this industry is at that level right now. There's trillions of dollars that are going to be made over the course of the next 10 to 15 years in this industry. By the time they finally, you know, end prohibition, I have a feeling that we're going to see this jump to a seven, eight billion dollar, trillion dollar industry within the next five to ten years, especially when we start looking at all the ancillary uses of the hemp plant. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think therefore we have a responsibility to do it the right way. It's like you said, unfortunately, I think we're in the minority, you know, but you hope that as the industry continues to mature more people are passionate for the right reasons and see that there is a realistic business opportunity here, but there's also a lot of opportunities to create positive lasting change. I mean, it just seems to me, it's like, you know, this industry is, as, as does takes maybe two steps forward, then it takes six, seven steps backwards. I mean, people have to recognize that, you know, we are no further along than let's say the Wright brothers pushing that wooden plane down a hill. There's trillions of dollars to be made if we just were to literally come together as an industry, form some sort of a coalition so that we could lobby at the same time together in D.C. and start pushing these legislators who are, are a lot of them who've been blocking making this a real business are about to retire. They got to. These guys have gotten so old that they can't barely make it in and out of the, the, the capital. So, you know, I think over the next couple of years, 
we could see a change in this industry if the industry decides to embrace it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think for me, you hear it all the time, and I'm sure you do, Montel. Safe banking is going to happen this year. Legalization is going to happen that year. And, you know, for me, I don't buy into the hype there. I think what's concerning to me is just the strength of the lobby against cannabis, whether it's pharma, whether it's alcohol. You know, you're looking at a cannabis industry that's call it 11, 12 billion dollars today around the country. That's nothing compared to some of these lobbies, right? It's it's nothing that, that, that that's what we've been figured out is that well now you know the cannabis industry did we did sell twenty five billion dollars worth of product in twenty twenty one you know that right twenty twenty two I think it was twenty five billion plus so making it one of the most sought after consumer products in America we sold more cannabis in twenty twenty one than they sold milk in every grocery store across the country yeah. milk only sold eighteen billion dollars worth of product energy drinks only sold twenty three billion dollars worth of products. You know, um, the and, and when you look at 25 billion, that's the legal market. We know that the black and gray market probably represents another at least three times that. So let's say we're at 75 billion dollars worth of products being sold. Well, you know, I think we are sitting in a time right now where you know the industry is growing. I mean, I, 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 like I look at, I've, I've been in New York recently, and you know, I swear to you, you walk outside of any hotel in New York. Cannabis is everywhere. I mean, every fourth person that walks by you is blowing a joint in your face, um, which I don't necessarily think that's probably the best thing for the industry because um, it just brings all the naysayers out of the woodworks to, to come after us. However, you know, New York is going to probably, I think, eclipse California in sales pretty soon because you got people from multi-states coming into New York to get things. Um, are you planning on moving or at least getting into New York and, and trying to get to the East Coast? Yeah, so we're actively getting into the East Coast right now. Um, we're focusing on the states that already have a, you know, operational or a pathway to an operational recreational market. Um, New York is on the short list. But, you know, as you said, right now, it's a pretty chaotic, fragmented, you know, state, you know, you have a thriving black market, you don't really have enforcement on to the black market because you know it's decriminalized in New York. They want to legalize, and there's a whole conundrum about social justice. If you start arresting people and then you start licensing and allowing other people to become profitable, I agree with you that I think in the long run, it's you can argue New York is going to be an insane market. New York is New York, right? But what is scary to me is, is New York going down the path that California is now facing, where you have a black market that's three to four times as big as a legal market, and the downward pressure that it puts on the legal market, right, from sales to tax, to all of these type of things. The only difference is New York is doing it five years later, and it seems to be a lot more out of control. So that is the big what if for me, you know, I would need to know that New York has a way to control that to really stabilize and stand up a fully licensed legalized market. I don't believe that'll happen until the Fed gets in and makes a decision. I mean, the Fed's going to have to make a decision. And then when the Fed makes a decision to stop prohibition and allow for the allow states to set their own rules and then they come in and enforce those rules, that's the only way we're going to impact the black market. Because I think the black market is here to stay, at least at least for the next 10 years until we get a grip on more equity in the industry. 
Because there are some places where, you know, there are some people who will never buy from what they consider the legal market because they feel like they've been excluded from the legal market. So why would I shop there? Yeah. So, well, we make sure that this is an industry that's created with inclusion as one of its tenets. And that's something that you believe very strongly in, right? Yeah. I mean, again, like where we started the conversation, right? Just from my upbringing, your upbringing, being people of color, I think inclusion is something I just believe in as a fundamental level, right? And I really believe that, again, what this plant represents, how it's been used historically by societies across the world, understanding the only reason it ever became a scheduled one drug here in the US, right? It, you got to reverse that propaganda. You got to reverse that racism. You got to reverse this talk track. And like legalization is that conduit to create opportunity to make change. The problem is it has to start at the individual level. So for me, I control it with my platform, huge advocate for helping social equity applicants stand up their businesses to support with them, to partner with them and, you know, keep them in the business. Right. Huge proponent of high, you know, hiring, you know, um, you know, uh, ex-convicts and rehabilitated, you know, um, individuals that were incarcerated into the workforce, giving them vocational training, helping them find opportunities. I'm a huge proponent of using our revenue to reinvest in underserved communities, whether that be after school programs, anti-drug programs, you know, education, scholarship, you know, just again, it doesn't have to be around cannabis, but it's like you got to use the platform to create change, you know? Really? Absolutely. Now, your products mostly organic, and and what's been some of the challenges to produce organic cannabis? So we're not certified organic. We grow using primarily biomineral nutrients with organic input, such as you know organic humic acid. For us, it's really a focus of increasing a healthy living um, rhizosphere. You know, that's the soil layer around the roots. As we move into the future, we definitely want to pursue an organic certification. But right now, it's kind of finding the balance between flavonoids, the type of cannabis we're producing, what is optimal for indoor cultivation environment. And so we're all natural, but it's a combination of biomineral and organic. And do you use your own genetics? We use about 80, 85 percent of our own genetics. Um, and then the rest are genetics that we hunt, we find, we bring into our system and we cross to make our own. But that starting input might have been a genetic that, you know, we liked somewhere else or there was a property that we liked about it that we brought into our system. Got it. And what are your thoughts like on the CBD industry and loopholes for like things like Delta 8 and Delta 10 and or, or was it Delta O? I mean, what are, you, what are your thoughts on, on that? I mean, I listen, I understand it from a business opportunity. I understand why people are pursuing it. I don't like the fact that it's not regulated, right? I don't like the fact that it's not safe. I don't like the fact that, you know, it's to me, it's analogous to the, you know, vitamin E acetate problem we had in Vapegate a few years ago. You know, it's all good till something happens and someone gets hurt and then the can the licensed legal cannabis industry gets the negative mark because people can't differentiate the difference between you know a synthetic product they bought at a gas station versus a tested licensed legal medicinal product or recreational product they bought at a dispensary and then when you say that though the tested we are finding out that a lot of these testing facilities really don't know what they're doing they're just That's pulling out numbers and people are actually you know shopping for testing facilities that will give them the numbers that they look they're looking for but not necessarily the truth so yeah. again, the, what's it going to take to get this industry to, to come together and act like a 
industry and start policing itself. Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, here in California, we just had, you know, I'm sure you saw some pretty big lawsuits where brands were sued because they were posting, you know, artificially inflated THC numbers, right? Um, and I think you're going to see more and more things like that happen. And hopefully they go after the, the labs as well, right? Like you said, it takes policing within the industry and it takes a regulatory body to actually regulate and police to make these things happen. Otherwise, you're always going to have opportunistic bad actors that are looking for the, you know, the path of least resistance and really focusing on, you know, short term profits versus building long term businesses and again, investing in the ultimate consumer experience. If you had to put on your crystal ball and, and think to yourself, when is some of this stuff going to start shaking out? Why don't you give me give me an idea of what's going to happen over the next four or five years? So I think four or five years, you'll see safe banking pass, right? I think when safe banking passes, hopefully that comes along with, uh, you know, the omission of 280E tax. I think both of those things are going to be material for the industry as a whole, right? Both in terms of like the creation of capital markets for the cannabis industry, like you said, if we're doing $25 billion in sales, it's insane that you can't get banked or get debt easily, right? That's insane. And so I think first and foremost, that's going to make a major positive improvement into the overall mechanics of the industry. And I think that, again, 280E, it only exists because we're classified as a Schedule One drug. That's insane. Why are we getting dinged with the 280E tax? You know, being charged 70, 75% or greater effective tax rate when, again, we're a licensed you know, legal industry. It doesn't make sense. So again, for most businesses, that just really hamstrings them and makes it impossible for them to ever be successful or profitable. So again, if you really want to stand up the industry, you've got to resolve those things. Otherwise, it's really impossible to have long-term sustainable growth. And what else do you see? I mean, over the course of the next three or four years, I mean, we're seeing more and more states and more, we're going to break. I think, are we not at 40 states now? I think we just hit our 40th state. That has some sort of cannabis regulation. That's that's you know that's eighty percent of the country. There is zero reason why the Fed should not have to step in now. So yeah, I think we're just you know I, I hate to say it, and I think it's like how you started the conversation with just some of the crazy crap that's happening politically in this country. And I think if we weren't so extremist on both sides. We would just kind of be commonsensical down the middle. And again, we would understand that this is a good thing for everybody. You know, why are we making it so polarizing? And like you said, the Fed should step in and they should stabilize this industry. I think that unfortunately, it's like the bureaucrats that are focusing on what's best for their political agenda versus truly focusing on what's best for the country and how do we build this industry the right way. Yeah, I, I, I will tell you, I will bet you that mm, give it one year from like today, we're going to start hearing whoever the presidential candidates are from each party start stepping up to the plate and say, well, well, as soon as I get in the office, the first hundred days I'm going to do like we heard before. Yeah. I'm going to do something that is still now we're 300 days in and the one that's in office right now knows it's probably the only thing that's going to get him reelected is if he steps up to the plate and does something for yeah. cannabis. Um, the other one is sitting on the fence. I'm not sure if he'll ever, unless he can get Uday and Kuse in, he, you know, uh, and I, I doubt if he'll move towards cannabis. So we could be looking at another five years just in this stalemate. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. And I think that's what it really comes down to. Just, you know, you got to build healthy business. You got to be focused. You got to have differentiated high quality products. You have to have a lane. You've got to invest and, you know, build your consumer loyalty. And if you're not doing those things, 
it's really hard to survive this industry because again, you're, you're getting both arms tied behind your back. And like you said, it could be another five years, right? So whereas an inefficient business in an other industry might be able to like, you know, um, uh, limp along, it's hard to do that in cannabis, right? In California, we're seeing 60% of the licenses not renew this year. That's crazy. You know, and we've already had however many businesses go out of business over the last two years, right? So again, you know, you could argue it's better, it's fitter for the industry in the long run. But again, it's really a function of inefficient regulation. I think it just the fact that you just said 60% of licenses is not being renewed, that just does nothing more than bolster the black and gray area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Yeah. 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 Anything else you want to add, my friend? No, I mean, I think like you, I'm bullish on the industry. I'm excited, right? I think we both align on the fact that this is a net positive for the country and individuals. And, you know, I think- well, I, right. And at an individual level, if you're in this industry, you, I think you owe it to yourself and the industry to do the right thing. Like you said, to be part of a cohesive group that's making change. Yes, absolutely. Well, I thank you. You clearly are um, thought leader, industry leader. No, it's answer butts. Um, I have really unbelievable. Thank you so much for participating today. If ever you want to come back and be a participant again, I'll make sure that the glitches aren't there that we had happen during our, our taping. But um, uh, we'd love to have you back. Okay. Thank you, Montel. I'd love to be back. Absolutely. And I may reach out to you just to pick your brain a little bit to see if there's any synergism between what we're doing and what you're doing and we might be able to, to work together. 100%. I couldn't love that more. Would love the conversation. All right, sir. You stay well. Be well, my friend. And love the family of yours. And thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt today. And thank you for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin. And I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.